First of all, I don't know what's happening at the moment, but when it comes to hymn tunes, my mind just goes foggy. I don't know why, and sometimes I've got a tune in my head and it doesn't come out of my mouth when I start the hymn, so please forgive me for that, and if anybody could do it better, you're very welcome. It's a hard job to do, and I always appreciate the help of anybody else that knows a tune rather than me. Second reason, apology, is I'm sorry you've got to listen to me twice today. Um, I'm taking the gospel today, and I would ask you to pray for that because um, there's a particular John when he spoke to us first you gave your testimony you remember that John after that meeting a number of folks who we've been praying for a while came to me afterwards and says Jim it's really good to hear somebody's story of how they came to know the Lord and so John actually stimulated a real good conversation amongst a number of folks when he gave his testimony and folks were really um, touched and impressed by that and and one particular person said to me, Jim, how did you become a Christian? And so I promised that person that the next time I preached the gospel, I would tell my story of how I became a Christian. Uh, and so that's what I'm going to do tonight. So just to give you a heads up about that, because there are a number of people who are coming who have shown interest in that type of thing. And I think what that means is they understand the gospel, but they're just struggling with that concept of how they become a Christian and so they're looking for stories that might help them and examples that might encourage them so um, that's that's what we're going to be doing tonight and for Thursday I've been t- talking about the Christian soldier I know that but last time I spoke about the Bible remember I didn't quite finish so I want to finish that off before I go back to speaking about the Christian soldier so we're going to be reading today from Luke's Gospel and chapter number 14. Uh, Brother Dews gave us a lovely, helpful explanation of the first um, part of the chapter um, last week. We're going to begin from verse number 14. We're going to be reading right down to the end of the chapter. It is a substantial portion, a substantial passage of the scripture. We're only going to be able to say some general things about it. But, but let me say something before I read this passage. And it's this. As I get older, I become more convinced about how important it is to get the basics of your Christian life right. It doesn't matter all about the peripheral things, but if you don't have the basics right, all the rest doesn't matter, really. It just becomes window dressing rather than than anything else. So let me tell you right from the beginning where where I'm starting from. Here's where I'm starting from. My starting point is this. The Bible is the written word of the one true living God. I believe that with all my heart. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. And he has chosen to reveal his will for everything in the Bible. And that includes me. There's no more reliable source of truth And there's no higher authority than the Bible, the living word of God. And so when we read the Bible, the value of the Bible is not in the the leather and the paper and the ink. The value of the Bible is the truth that it contains. This is the word of God. And so when we read it, we read it carefully and attentively and submissively and so when we have a gathering like this the single most important part is the reading of the bible 
Because when I speak, I could make a mistake. When I speak, I could be unreliable. When I speak, you don't have to listen. But when God speaks, we have to listen. So we're going to read this passage, a substantial passage from um, Luke chapter 4. And we begin at verse number 14. And I've got one or two little um, slides today just to try and illustrate one or two of the general things that I want to say. We've had the Lord Jesus taken for the temptation in the wilderness. And it says in 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went about a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. I'm reading from the authorised version. Maybe if you have a more modern version, it will say Isaiah. So it's the book of Isaiah. It's actually chapter 61 where he's reading. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So just a simple point here is, the Lord Jesus was not assigned to read this passage. He chose to read this passage. Okay? So this isn't, there was in the synagogues a, a diary of reading right? Particularly the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and I'm not sure if it was true of the prophets, but he found the place where it was written. This is the Lord Jesus specifically, deliberately reading a prophecy about the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 61. So let's read it. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, everybody in that synagogue would be familiar with this as being a very clear, obvious prophecy of the Messiah that would come to be the deliverer. There would be no ambiguity about it. They wouldn't have to debate about who this was talking about. Whenever this was read, they were thinking, Messiah is coming. God is sending the deliverer, the Messiah. So when he reads this scripture, they've got God's Messiah in mind. The one that God would send to be the deliverer, the restorer of all things, the, the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. This is who they're reading about. They would have no doubt about that. Read on. And he closed the book and he gave it to the minister and he sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened in him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And what is he saying? It's me. Can you see that? He's not saying it's somebody else. He's saying this scripture is fulfilled today, right now, and it's fulfilled in me. I am the one Messiah sent from God. What a claim, folks. What a claim. This had been read for hundreds of years. And nobody would have dared to identify themselves with this verse. But he does. Look what it says. 
and all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? They're baffled that this one who was a, for 30 years lived a very ordinary, perfect life. I don't mean perfect as ordinary. I just mean his life was perfect, but it was a very ordinary life. Until this point, they had only identified him as the son of Joseph. Now, we know he's the son of God and the son of, of Mary, but from a human point of view, everybody identified Joseph as his earthly father. And suddenly the one, the very ordinary carpenter of Nazareth is claiming to be the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose as the Messiah. Isn't that wonderful? That's a big claim. You would have thought they would have thought, great, just what we've been, just, just what we've been waiting to hear. Just who we've been waiting for. We are privileged beyond all people on earth to have the Messiah in our synagogue preaching amongst us, and he's been with us, and this is what happens. And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in, in thy country. And already the Lord Jesus knows they're going to be sceptical. I'll show you a map and a little bit about what's been happening, but, but between what Deduzzi spoke about last week and what we're reading about this week, there's been quite a period of time. And the Lord Jesus had been moving around in Galilee and Judea, and he'd been doing stuff. He'd been doing stuff in these places. After his baptism, his public ministry had already been started for about a year. And the gap between the end of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 16, those two verses, verse 14 and 15, are actually contained in the first six chapters of the book of John. So they've heard that the Lord Jesus had been doing stuff. And they're saying, what you've done there, do here. Prove it. That's what they're saying. They're basically saying to the Lord, okay, big claim, prove it. And he said, verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you the truth that many were in Israel in the days of Elias. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout the, all the land. But unto no, none of them was Elias sent save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And you remember what happens. The Lord restores the woman, if you know the story. The Lord, a widow woman who was poor and had lost her husband, loses her son, and Elias raises the, the, the boy from the dead. And what he's saying is, there was many widows in those days, and Elias only did it for one. Only did it for one, right? And look what he says. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. So again, there's a great story of Naaman the Syrian, and there was lots of lepers, but God only heals one. What does that say? God is economical with miracles. Whenever God does a miracle, it's got a very deliberate, specific reason. It's not, it's not to do with entertainment, and it's not to do like the Lord Jesus and the prophets, they, they weren't like the traveling circus. Right, folks, that would go around and just do things at a whim, you know, reproduce their tricks and reproduce their, their miracles at a time. When a miracle was done in the Bible, it wasn't, it was done economically, specifically, and deliberately to put the seal on the authenticity of something. That's what it was, right? And we'll need to keep that in our mind as we, as we go on. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city 
And they led him unto the brow of the hill wherein their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. So his own people, hearing his claim of messiahship, because he wouldn't do what they wanted at their whim, they actually decided they would rather be rid of him than have him. And this is at least, this is the first occasion of at least two occasions when they tried to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. His own people in Nazareth, and in another place they took up stones to stone him. And in both of these occasions, look what it says, but he passing through the midst of them went his way. So on at least two occasions in the life of the Lord Jesus, he was at a place where there was a possibility that people could have taken his life, right? They could have stoned him here, they could have thrown him over the cliff here, and they could have stoned him in another passage. But each time, miraculously, he escaped from their intention to kill him. Why? Why? It's obvious, isn't it? Because he didn't come to die to be being thrown over a cliff. He didn't come to die to be stoned. He didn't come to die at the hands and the will of human beings. Listen to what he says. No man takes my life from me. Remember that? I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. In other words, his death planned, purposed, deliberately intended from before the world was was founded was going to happen at Calvary and nobody and nothing could could stop that nobody and nothing isn't that wonderful folks how powerful and how precious and how great the Lord Jesus is that even the, the hardest and worst intentions of men could were thwarted because he was in control so it says this he came down to Capernaum a city of Galilee and taught them on the Sabbath days and they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. Now, if you go a little bit earlier on, in verse 22, we, they marveled at the gracious words that he spoke. And now they're saying his word was with power. In other words, when he preached, people were changed. There was no apathy. Either people hated him or they accepted him. There was no apathy. His word made an impact. His word dictated that people had to go one way or the other. When you heard his word, it was so powerful, you had to make a choice. Either him or your own way. Right, okay. There was nobody shrugged their shoulders and said, big deal. I preach the gospel quite a lot. Do you know what I dread in the gospel? I dread people react to the gospel with apathy. <laughs> You know, people just hearing the gospel and then shrugging their shoulders and saying, no big deal. It never happened when the Lord Jesus spoke. Look what it says. And in the synagogue there was a man which had the spirit of an unclean devil. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Isn't that a strange place for an unclean devil to be in the synagogue? Do you not find that strange? Do you not find that strange? In the place where the word of God was being preached, in the, word, in the place where the word of God was being read often, in the word where prayers were made and praise was, was sung, there was a man there with an unclean spirit. And I take it from this that he wasn't just a visitor, he was part of the regular congregation. Right? He's part of the regular congregation. And these people were so set in the formality and deadness of religion that they could actually have a man with an unclean spirit amongst them and they didn't even know. They didn't even know. 
But now the devil cries out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who thou art. Art thou come to destroy us? I know who thou art, the Holy One of God. And so what happens is, the presence of Jesus exposes the devilish work of the demon. See, that's what happens when the Lord's present, when his, his presence comes. When God, by his presence, comes even amongst his people, sin and defilement and unholiness can't stay in the same place. God can't dwell in a place where there's uncleanness or sin or holiness. We talk about that in the gospel. But it's true when the Lord's people come together. And so when the Lord's presence was there, the devils, the demons had to say, no, we have to get out of here. We have to get out of here. We can't stay in his presence. I want to say some more about that, but I won't later on. It says this, and they were all amazed, and Jesus rebuked him and saying, hold thy peace, come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. So the Lord Jesus now has demonstrated his power over demons, over demons. Just one thing to say. There are some people in the world who see demons everywhere, right? Okay. You, if, you're, if you have to go to the opticians, the demon's affecting your eyesight. If you're a smoker, it's a demon of tobacco that's in you. And people see demons everywhere and want them cast out. That's not biblical. Not biblical. There are some people that don't see demons anywhere, right? They think that's all finished and done. And I don't think that's true either, right? I don't think that's true either. And I think in our Western society, we have become inoculated to the presence of spiritual power both uh, positive and negative, right? So some people that see don't see demons anywhere and some people that see demons everywhere. But it's very true that when the Lord Jesus was here in Israel, there was a special demonic activity against him, right? So when we read about demons in our New Testament, during that period in Israel when the Lord Jesus was present, the devil was active in a way that he was... He was never active in anywhere else. So the presence of demons in the, the, the Gospels is not necessarily a reflection of demons in our society now. But I don't want you to think that they're not present. But I do want you to know that the Lord Jesus has power over demons. Right? That's the point. That's the point. And in my experience in life, personally, folks, maybe I'm insensitive, I can think of at least five fellas, five men I know particularly met in prison, that there's no other explanation I can have for them than they're under the control of the devil and a demon. But we don't worry about that because the Lord has power over demons, doesn't he? He's got power over demons. And they were all amazed, verse 36, and they spake amongst themselves, saying, what a word is this? For with what authority and power... He commanded the unclean spirits and they came out and the fame of him went out into every place in the country and round about. And so we've now got the Lord speaking gracious words. We've now had him speaking powerful words. Now he's speaking authoritative words. Okay? Authoritative words. There is a difference between having the power to do something and having the authority to do something. Isn't there? You know, I could, I could have the power to build a barricade on that road and stop all the traffic. I could do that, couldn't I? And people are doing that in different places. They're building barricades and stopping traffic coming. And I could stand in the middle of the road and say, stop. I could have the power to do that. But I don't have the authority to do that, do I? I don't have the authority to do that. And people could just ignore me and drive around me and say, go away. But if there's a traffic car parked at the side of the road and a policeman with a white topped 
cap standing in the middle of the road and he doesn't need a barricade, he just needs to put up his hand and say, stop, doesn't he? Because he's not just got the power to stop you, he's got the authority to stop you. So the Lord Jesus just doesn't have powerful words because powerful words can be done emotionally, folks. You can manipulate folks with powerful emotional words, can't you? You can use your words to manipulate people's emotions. You can make people cry with your words. You can make people laugh with your words. Words are powerful. But the Lord Jesus has got more than powerful words. He's got authoritative words. In other words, what he says, he's got authority to say. Verse 38. And he arose out of the synagogue and he entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever. And they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she arose and ministered unto him. So the Lord Jesus has power over demons. He's got power over disease. Disease, do you see that? There are some times when disease is actually demon produced in the Bible. Isn't that right? It's not always demon produced. Again, there's a great error that goes around saying that sickness is of the devil. Sickness is because of the fall, folks, right? And it won't be go away and reversed until the Lord Jesus reverses the effects of the fall, right? Okay. Demons can produce physical effects, but not all physical illnesses because of the, the, the devil or demons. It's not. And this is a proof of it. Because there's not a mention of the demons or the devils here. And it says the Lord rebuked the fever and it left her. So the Lord Jesus has power over demons, he's power over disease, and in other places we see his power over death. That's a good outline for preachers if you want to use it for the gospel. Okay. Verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with divers diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. And there's another place in the Bible that says he healed them all. Do you know what percentage success rate the Lord Jesus had with healing? What percentage do they have? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And again, we're in a, 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 a Christian atmosphere now of this. You know, see, if you don't get healed, you know what? It's your fault. It's not my fault. I'm the healer. You need healing. And if you don't get healed, it's your fault. Not my fault because you don't have enough faith. Do you know, the Lord Jesus healed without anybody having faith. Remember the man, his four friends came. And let him down through the roof. And he got down and he says, your sons are forgiven. Do you know what it says about them? When he saw, not his faith, do you know what he says? When he saw their faith. When he saw their faith. Right? So this healing, the Lord Jesus, when he chooses to heal, he never needs help and he never has to go back and do it again. And he never, he never has a, a 95% success rate, a 91%, a 99% the Lord Jesus, when he chooses to heal, heals 100% completely, right? But healing miracles were always substantiating miracles. They were never done for just the sake. And one of the things, the points I was going to make, but we're not going to get time to make is, do you know what the Lord Jesus' primary ministry was when he was here? It wasn't a healing ministry. The Lord Jesus' ministry was a preaching and teaching ministry. He did healing and miracles to substantiate the, the, the fact that he was the Messiah, but he didn't come specifically to heal. He came to preach and he came to teach. And that's why I've spent some time in this chapter emphasizing his word. Let, let's keep reading. He came and he stayed that he should not, uh, and, um, and rebuke him, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. 
that verse, that's the end of verse um, 41. Verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place, and the people saw him and came unto him and stayed him that he should not depart from them. So they thought, this is great. This is great. Suddenly some people have said, you know, we can use this man here. Don't, don't leave us. We'll make you our own. We want our own. He says this. And he said unto them, I must heal the people that are diseased. No, he doesn't say this. I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. For therefore am I sent. The Lord Jesus is saying he sent to preach. And he sent to teach. When the Lord Jesus sent out his apostles, what did he send them out to do? What did he send them out to do? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you and lo I am with you always even to the end of the age and during that early time when God was doing something new he says you know what I'm going to do with you boys I'm going to give you some opportunity to verify the fact that you're sent from me but I'll do some miracles through you just so that people will listen to you and the miracles and the healing of the apostolic age were not the point they were the, the continuation of God's verification of the new truth that had come, that the Messiah had come and that he was here. And it says this, and he preached in the synagogues of, Gal- of Galilee. We're almost out of time, so a couple of things I want to say to you. I spend all my life trying to get people to read the Bible. That's what I do, folks, okay? And... But see if somebody does start to read the Bible, you discover it's a pretty big book, right? And it's pretty complicated. And one of the things people would say is, where do I start? How do I start? And that's a very, very valid question. Why are there four Gospels in the Bible, folks? Why are there four Gospels in the Bible? Because the Bible, big as it is, and, um, you know, intricate and, 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 and full of information as it is, there's very little repetition in the Bible. There's some repetition in the Old Testament between Kings and Chronicles and things like that. But for all the 66 books contained, there's very, very little repetition. But there's four gospel records. There's four records of the life, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke is just one of them. Luke is just one of them. Why is that? Because the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross and his resurrection is what the whole Bible is about. That's what it's about. You see, from Genesis to Revelation, it's God's work of salvation, isn't it? Humanity fell, humanity sinned, and when you get to Revelation chapter 22, God says, okay, I'm going to fix it forever. And so the whole Bible is the story of God's work in salvation to restore to himself a people for his glory, for his glory. And because we can't gain God's favour, because sin is so bad and corrupts us so much and we can't bring anything to God, God intervened, didn't he? And the whole of the Old Testament says God is going to send the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Saviour, the one who's going to, by his suffering and death, take away your sins, and I'm going to be the answer for you. I'm going to put things right. I'm going to send the Savior. And so all through the Old Testament and the prophets and, in the, and, the, and all those Psalms and, in, and the Torah, 
God's people, God's Jews were always looking for the Messiah. That's what they were doing. When they, when they read the Bible, when they were in the synagogues, they were always told Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. And that's what they were waiting for. They were waiting for the Saviour. And when the Lord Jesus came, that's why I took some time in those verses. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, Jesus is saying, what you've been waiting for all this time, now is the time. There has never been a more important time in human history in the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because there are four gospel writers, it's emphasis, that's one of the things, right? But not every gospel writer can give you everything that happened in the birth and the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So each gospel writer has something specific to a point to make when he's writing. So, so, so you, know what, you know what Luke's point is. This, is. this is Luke's point. Because for the first four chapters, he's given a kind of introduction to what he's going to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then here's what he says. He says this, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some times past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So what's happening here is, Luke's concerned that Christians would be full of confidence and certainty and conviction. He's interested in accuracy. He's interested in being able to rest your whole life and eternity on the facts of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I want you to be sure of what I'm telling you. And so he talks a lot about, there's a lot of historical facts, isn't there? And there's a lot of um, scriptural facts. And when we get to the end of this, um, when we get to start verse 14, Luke's kind of finished his introduction by saying, you can be sure here. You can be sure that what I'm telling you is absolutely true. You don't have to worry. You don't have to, you, you might have some clever people come and talk to you, but I'm telling you what you're going to learn from me is absolutely true. And he says you can be absolutely true about the scriptures. Absolutely sure about the scriptures. Isn't that what he's saying? Because how many times has he quoted the scriptures? You can absolutely be sure about the scriptures. You can absolutely be sure that the spirit of God is working. Because in the first few chapters of the book of um, Luke, the Spirit of God is mentioned time and time and time and time again. Who led the Lord Jesus into the wilderness for the Jesus passage? Who did that? Who led the Lord Jesus into the wilderness? The Spirit led him. Isn't that right? And in verse 14, when he comes back from the wilderness, what does it say? He returns in the power of the, the Spirit. And who was moving in the lives of the people that were being prepared for the Lord coming? Who was speaking in those days? The Spirit. So as we as Christians, we can absolutely be totally convinced about the reliability of the Scriptures. We can be totally convinced about the provision and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can be totally and utterly convinced about the infallibility of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Saviour. That's absolutely what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you can be sure. You can be confident. Not self-confident, but you can be confident in the Scriptures, confident in the Spirit, confident in the Saviour, because that temptation that we heard about last week so wonderfully, you, you, know, you know, the Lord Jesus was tempted for 40 days. We've only got a wee sample of it here. And he comes through it all, and he comes through it all absolutely perfect. And so God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so if the Lord Jesus is your saviour, you can rely on him 100%. He's never going to let you down. He's never going to be tempted to, to forget you. He's never going to be too weak to support you. And whatever you go through, you can have confidence in him. 
absolute confidence in him. But then when we, when we come to the, the next few verses, we need a wee bit of geography, don't we really? Because that's Israel in, in, in New Testament times. There's basically, you really need to know three areas of Israel to understand the, the movements of the Lord Jesus. There's what you call his Judean ministry. And you see the area down at the bottom? Judea, just by the Dead Sea. Jerusalem's down there, right? And it's a kind of desert area. And it's where the Lord Jesus went for some time. But when we start to read here, he's in Galilee. You see where Galilee is? It's further north, up by the Sea of Galilee. And Galilee's where he spent most of his time. Most of the Lord Jesus' three and a half years ministry was called his great Galilean ministry. And because it was a place that was just full of synagogues. Synagogues. Was a big so where did he go to read? And when he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and that's up in Galilee, he went into the synagogue as his custom was. Because the synagogue system for Jews was a, wherever there was 10 Jewish men, there could be a synagogue. And if there was a city with more than Jewish men, there could be sometimes a multitude of synagogues in, in one city. And if you go up to Bencham, you'll see the synagogues up there. Synagogues were not a replacement for the temple. There was only one temple. It was up in Jerusalem. But synagogues were places where Jews would customarily go to hear the word of God, to sing God's praises, and to pray. And it's really interesting because every synagogue was built with a door facing Jerusalem. They were all facing Jerusalem. So if you're in the north, the door would be facing south. So when the, the fellow reads and prays, he's facing Jerusalem. And when the people leave the place, they're heading towards Jerusalem, right? Okay. Now, we don't have that. If you come to Durham Jail with me, every landing in the jail's got an arrow in the floor that points towards where? Mecca. Because that's what, that's what Muslims do, they pray towards Mecca. And in those days, people prayed towards Jerusalem because that was where the Lord has placed his name. But where do we pray now? We don't pray to Jerusalem or Mecca. We pray to the Lord in heaven, don't we? We don't have a direction other than a heavenly direction. But the synagogues were centres for the preaching of the word of God. And all over Galilee, there were synagogues where the Lord Jesus could go in, read the scriptures, and preach. So, so one of the things I want you to think about is not just confidence in the scriptures, it's, it's coverage. It's coverage. Because all over Galilee, there was places where he could go. Look what it says. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. I need to be careful, but I don't want you to think that Sunday's the Christian's Sabbath. I don't want you to think that, okay? But I do want you to realise that God's people always and ever have had a discipline in their Christian in their in their spiritual life. And they've always had a, a custom. And it was very clear that in the New Testament, instead of the the Christians adopting the custom of the synagogue and the, the Sabbath. They followed what the Lord Jesus did on his resurrection and his ascension. And their custom was to set out the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. And Christians had a custom as well. that they. So the Lord Jesus was disciplined in his custom of going up into the synagogue on the Sabbath. We should be disciplined, folks, in our Christian life to get together to meet and to read and to pray and to sing. And, and we should be disciplined that, particularly on a Lord's Day. So there was coverage, there was confidence. The other thing I wanted you to say, see was this. He concentrated on preaching and teaching. 
the Lord Jesus placed a big emphasis on the preaching of the word of God. Folks, that's why we do that. We place our big emphasis on the preaching of the word of God because that's what the Lord Jesus did and that's what he's told us to do. That's what he's told us to do. We're proclaimers of the word of God. And the Lord Jesus, you know, this whole thing I was telling you about is God's message of salvation. That's the big message in the Bible. That God would save. That God would have people for himself and not so much for our blessing. Now, we will be blessed through salvation, aren't we? We are blessed for salvation. But you know what the big thing in, in salvation is? That God will have people for his eternal glory. That we can glorify God. And so that's why we keep preaching the gospel here. We're not preaching the gospel just because we do it and because we think it's easy and we think it's routine. We want folks to know that salvation is still available to everyone who can come and know Christ and become part of that great purpose of God and salvation to glorify him. That's why we keep doing it on a Sunday afternoon. And some people get fed up with it. How can you get fed up with God's plan of salvation? How can you get fed up with the glory of the fact that God is still right now calling people out of this world to save and to make them his own for all eternity? I think that's a wonderful thing. And that's what the concentration was in the the Lord's ministry. Preaching, 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 preaching. And as I say, with other parts of the Bible that will help us understand that miracles were not just, they weren't just done for miracles' sake. There was always a reason for it. There was always a reason for it. Your son, your, the man with the, the, that was crippled and was brought through the roof. Son, your sins are forgiven. Yeah. Okay, rise and take up your bed and walk. Why is, what is it easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or your rise and take up your bed and walk. See, it was just a verification. John's gospel, wonderful gospel. How many, at the end of John's gospel, John says, <laughs> you know what? If everything the Lord taught and did was to be written down, we've got four gospels. He says, but I'm telling you right now, if everything the Lord did and and said was written down, I don't think the whole world would contain the books that were written therein. So all that these writers are doing is sampling. They're sampling what happened in the life of the Lord Jesus. We don't have it all. We will one day understand it all. But they're sampling it all. So in John's Gospel, how many times does the Lord Jesus, does John record he did a, a miracle? People say seven. I actually think it's eight. I actually think it's eight. I think the resurrection's a wonderful miracle, do you know? So I think it's eight. But do you know what John says? They're just signs. They're just signs. They were just a way of pointing the finger and saying, listen to him. They weren't saying, come to him to get your, 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 your healing. They were saying, listen to his preaching. Because this proves that he's preaching with the authority of God because he's able to do these things. So there was confidence, there was coverage, there was concentration. And you look at, he preaches, he teaches, and there's different words. But then there's compassion. There's compassion. The healing of, the the deliverance of the man with the demon. The healing of Simon's mother-in-law's fever. The Lord Jesus was moved with compassion, folks. And you'll see that all through Luke's gospel. He'll deliver from demons. He'll deliver from disease. He'll deliver from death. And he gets to the end with the crowd and he looks in the crowd and he heals them all. He heals them all. He's not going to let anybody go away thinking that they were left out. You know, I've seen, if you're watching YouTube and these, 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 these healing campaigns, a lot of people are left out, aren't they? 
There's never a hundred percent. And it's all done with smoke and mirrors most most of the time. But you can't say he healed them all, can you? You can't. And even the apostles, they went out one time, even with the authority of the Lord to heal, and they couldn't heal even when the Lord had given them authority to heal because they were fallible humans. But the Lord Jesus was not like that. Not like that at all. He was moved with compassion. And then at the end it says this, he departs into a desert place and the people sought him. And he says, listen, I must preach the kingdom of God. So this is Luke's kind of introduction to the ministry of the Lord Jesus. The first four chapters are just that verification, that proof, that scriptural and spiritual uh, verification that what he's going to tell you is truth. And from chapter 4, verse 14, Luke opens a huge door and says, look, look what he's done. Look what he's like. Swim in the ocean of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you get to the end of the gospel, when they're taken up into heaven, when the Lord Jesus is taken up into heaven, you know, instead of these disciples moaning and groaning and saying, what will we do now? Do you know what they do? They go back into Jerusalem, worshipping and praising the Lord. Because they're swimming in the glory of the Messiah that's come to be the saviour and it's promised to come back for them one day. In a synagogue, there was never a time in the synagogue where the Jews were not reminded that their Messiah was coming. They were always left with this idea, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. And when he came, they didn't recognise him and didn't even want him. Wouldn't it be great as Christians if we never left our time together without reminding ourselves that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And we're waiting for him. Not to come and die as he did the first time, but to come and take us to be with himself. Now, folks, I have a very clear understanding from my Bible about the timetable of that. I do. But there are other Christians who don't have the same understanding as me. And you know what? I love them. And they're probably more intelligent than me, to be quite honest with you. The logistics and the timetable and the details are one thing. But surely we all believe the Lord's coming, don't we? And that's the point, folks. We're waiting for the Lord to come. And I think when he does come, we'll discover that none of us got it right. However confident and however arrogant we were about other people, I think we'll discover that none of us had fully figured out. So may the Lord help us more about Jesus would, I know. And as we launch into these next few chapters, a look, that's what's going to happen. We're going to see glory and wonder and we're going to want to love him more. That's what we want to do. That's the point, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, where would we be if the word of God wasn't available to us? We'd be wandering around in the darkness. But through the light of thy word, we've seen the light of the world, the Lord Jesus. And we long to know him more. We long to feast upon him still. We've, we've got a hymn that says that. We taste of thee the living bread and long to feast upon thee still. And so as we continue in our studies in Luke's gospel, may that hunger in our heart to know him more and love him more and serve him more be generated. Thank you, Lord, for our time this morning. Thank you, Lord, for refreshment that's been provided. And we give thanks in the Lord's name. Amen. I have spent far too long with Duduzzi. <laughs>
he's rubbed off on me. 